Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us in a series we've titled Paradox, A Different Way to Live. In this series, we will uncover the profound truths hidden within these seemingly contradictory statements as we embrace the challenge to follow Jesus' footsteps and be a catalyst for change in our world. We pray that this message is a blessing. Thanks be to God. Awesome. Hey friends, how are we doing? Good. Good. Awesome. School holidays are nearly over. So the parents in the room are like, I'm good, I'm ready for holidays to be over. Because for parents, it's not a holiday. It's uh, time with family. (laughs) Which is kind of like, I heard someone once say, when you get kids, um, holidays go from being holidays into trips. You go on trips, not holidays. Just because obviously you've got other kids to take care of. Anyway, no shade. It's just like, people are probably tired. Um, (laughs) There we go. Well, it's such a delight to be with you this afternoon. My name's Alex. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at Brisbane. And um, I just want to say a warm welcome as well. Like, thank you so much for choosing to be here this afternoon. And something we believe to be theologically true but existentially up for grabs is the fact that God is always here, but whether we're open to him being here is an open question. And so I just want to pray as we get into this and really ask that God might speak um, as we continue our series uh, called Paradox, A Different Way to Live. So would you join me as I pray? Awesome. Jesus, you are so good. And we pray, Lord, that as we sit in your scriptures this evening, you would show us what you want to show us, nothing less and nothing more. We long for the bread of heaven to come and nourish our souls. So thank you that you've spoken in your word and you will speak to us by your spirit through your word this evening. Come Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome, friends. I um, have the privilege, actually, just of kicking off with a little bit of an update, and that's simply this, that a month ago, we did our first ever New Life Brisbane fundraiser. Remember this? Uh, Fishes of Men. And our goal was to raise the whole budget that would see us through to being able to put 200 meals out a month next year, well, next financial year, starting this month, uh, for those on our street that we sort of walk through every single time we come to church on Sunday. I don't know if you know this, but I actually think homelessness in Brisbane's increasing. This is anecdotal, experiential, but there is a greater degree of people doing it tough in our city, and that's actually incredibly probable and makes a lot of sense just given the housing market, all the uncertainty with finances and the economy at the moment. And so the Church of Jesus Christ has such a beautiful opportunity, not just to be a mouthpiece for Jesus, but his hands and feet as well. And this ministry is such a tangible way that we get to make an impact in our city. I just want to let you know something really awesome. It takes $7,200 to put those meals out at the rate that we currently do. We were hoping to increase what we might do next year, and there's still an open question as to whether we might do that. But I get to say to you right now, 
that last month we raised $7,200 for the Fishers of Men Meals program here in Brisbane City. Come on, how good's that? And this afternoon, we had a whole host of people right next door prepping those meals to go out into the streets this evening. So it's slow-cooked beef stew this evening. So it's going to be, you know, pull apart, sort of break down beef. It's going to be a delicious time. Um, but I just want to say that fundraiser remains open. So if you feel stirred, maybe just put like the, the amount of a coffee toward it. We might indeed actually get further towards the goal that we had, but would say actually it's fully funded for next year. But whatever you do contribute will only help us maximize what we already do. So thank you so much. Go for it. Church and you, no, don't go there. Follow the prompts on the screen. Ignore the guy up the front. Follow the prompts on the screen. Um, there's a guy named D.L. Moody, Dwight L. Moody, and he's a famous evangelist from the 19th century. He lived in the 1800s. Thousands of people met Jesus because of this guy. He's an American. And in the late 1800s, he held a conference for pastors in Massachusetts. Now, at the time, interesting fact, at the time, it was common for European people to rely upon slaves and servants to polish their shoes. So Dwight L. Moody holds a conference, invites European pastors over, and every single night the European pastors would put their leather shoes at the foot of their door, left outside in the hallway, ready for a slave or a servant to polish them. But at the time, in America, slavery was on the way out. So there's no servants or stewards or slaves prepared to polish the shoes of the pastors that would come along. So D.L. Moody walks through the halls one night and notices all the shoes. And he's like, what do I do about this? I don't want to embarrass my brothers that I've invited over from Europe. I'll approach their student ministers and see if they'll help me do it. You know, the apprentices that are learning the way of the art of ministry from the senior ministers in their midst. And so he goes up to all the students and says something like, hey, will you help polish these shoes? And they all have these like really righteous responses. They're like, no, nah, I've got to pray. Or I've got to prepare a Bible study for my church back home. Or, you know, all these like really pious excuses. And so what D.L. Moody does, famous evangelist, Thousands of people have come to faith. He's running the entire event. He's busy. He collects all the shoes, goes quietly into the recesses of his cabin, and he starts polishing them. Now, he didn't tell anyone. And what I think is astounding about this is that I think would, if this was me, I'd be like, Europeans? <laughs> you kidding? I'd just let them, their shoes stay scuffed. And it's astounding to me that D.L. Moody picked him up. But here's the beautiful thing. He didn't tell anyone. And no one would have known about this if it wasn't for the fact that someone barged into his room one night unannounced and sees him polishing the shoes. And so what ends up taking place is that those who barge into his room, seeing Moody lower himself, serve the people that he invited to be with him, actually started joining him as the nights went on and started polishing the shoes with him. And so you've got this beautiful image of a man who shouldn't have, stooping himself to serve, and then doing that in secrecy and that becoming this bomb that lights the fire of service and greatness in the midst of the pastoral conference that took place in Massachusetts in the 1800s. And in D.L. Moody, right there, you get this beautiful image of the kind of greatness we're going to talk about this evening, the greatness of service. If you've been with us for a few weeks, you'll notice that we've walked through a series called Paradox, A Different Way to Live. And we've been looking at sort of the counterintuitive or complex or costly teachings of Jesus. You know the ones we want to ignore? Take up your cross the last will be first, um, or the first will be last. Actually, Jesus says both of those things. Um, die to self, 
all of these things, which I think for the modern person would be really easy to ignore, that sort of meet us down the corridors of history in the modern world now as the church, Jesus would give us this teaching. And we're walking through some of that teaching. And some of it was inspired by a guy named Ken Witzmer. And in his book, Pursuing Justice, he had these words to say about the kind of kingdom, the kind of paradox Jesus wants to unleash in the world. He said this, the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. It beckons us all to gamble all, to trust radically, to come and die so that we might live. It's losing so we can win. It's giving so we can receive. It's risking for security. It's faith. And tonight, it's service. We're looking at the paradox of greatness, and we want to ask the question, what does greatness look like in the kingdom of God? And when you ask that question, you come face to face with the paradox because the answer of Jesus is actually that greatness looks like service. Now, I had the privilege of preaching a sermon last year called The Ambitious Disciple. We looked at the same text, and I pulled out the same big idea, which basically means God's word doesn't change, and hopefully I say not too much that's different, but there will be some similar things that come out this evening. But my hope is that we walk away with this big idea that in the kingdom of God, if you want to be great, serve. If you want to be first, go last. If you want to win, lower yourself and become like the king we claim to follow, who made himself nothing. Greatness looks like service. So we're going to walk through Mark chapter 10, and my hope is that we'd see two things. You ready for this? Two things. You'll notice that I've gone from three things regularly to two things. It means I preach on time. <laughs> Everyone's really encouraged by it. But here it is, two things. One, I think we see the relief of God's glory. And I was just meditating this, on this this week, and it really struck me, actually. We see the relief of God's glory in this passage. And number two, we see the reality of Jesus' greatness. So let's look at the relief of God's glory. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 37, read this. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Bold question, right? Whatever we ask. So you know when someone comes to you and they're like, hey, I've got a favor. Will you do me a favor? And you're like, can I know what it is first? Right? Let's see what it is. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now, James and John, they'd been with Jesus for a while. They were some of the more earlier called disciples and they were faithful followers of Jesus. Jesus is born at the turn of the century, at least how we date it now. 30 years later, he begins his public ministry and Mark's gospel does something really interesting. The first half of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter one through to chapter eight, walks through Jesus demonstrating with deed and power the kingdom of God and how he is the king. He casts out demons, he heals the lame, he gives sight to the blind, he teaches with such authority. And there's this sort of picture that starts to develop that goes from two-dimensional to three-dimensional, from pixelated to high definition that Jesus is the king. Mark chapter one through to eight. We know that's the case because towards the end of chapter eight, Peter, his closest follower, one of the in crowd, says, actually, you are the Messiah, which is the old Hebrew word for king, which is really the word for Lord, in such a way, therefore, that the disciples realize that Jesus is the king, Caesar is not, Mark chapter one to eight. Jesus condescends to that title. He accepts that title. But then he spends the rest of his ministry trying to give the disciples a different dictionary to fill in the picture. You know what I'm saying? And so he predicts his death at the hinge of these chapters, chapter eight through to chapter nine, he predicts his death three times and says, yes, I am the Messiah, but the kind of kingship I'm going to in inaugurate will begin with me ascending, not a beautiful throne, 
but a brutal cross. Not an ornate crown, but a crown of thorns. I'm not gonna overthrow Rome, I'm gonna overthrow sin, take on the wrath of God, and satisfy the just requirements of a holy and loving God so I might reconcile humanity to myself. That's the kingship Jesus wants to start, and that's what he modeled for us, and it became the means by which Christians can be saved. And so what do we get with the disciples? We get disciples who show us that time with Jesus does not mean automatic transformation into the likeness of Jesus, right? Here they come to Jesus, and they think Jesus is going to overthrow Rome, and so if we just become like Jesus, follow him, and like be part of his band of posses, we might too be those that can overthrow Rome with a sword, overthrow evil with force, and therefore usher in the kingdom of God that God's people had long awaited for. They don't get it. And Jesus rebukes them and shows us really that what they're really hoping for is glory. They're hoping for glory. Now in this hope for glory, and there's a bit of teaching here, so follow with me and then we'll apply it to our lives just a touch more. But in this hope for glory, I think there's two kinds of glory that come to the fore in the disciples' question. Personal glory and political glory. Now, why is that the case? Well, it's political glory because what's prevalent at the time is the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was structured in such a way that all of Roman society was made sense of under the rule of Caesar. You'll see a little table behind me on the screen, a bit of a hierarchy. It's not the best drawing. This took me way longer than it should have, but here we are. On a scale of one to design work, I'm like a three out of 10. (laughs) But two things happened in the Roman sort of empire such that Caesar could extend his rule in a way never seen before. I don't know if you know this, but the Roman empire was the biggest empire known to that time. Nothing Nothing like it had come before. And so how does Caesar ensure that his rule, or what's called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, how does Caesar ensure that his rule is administrated over such a vast geography? And the answer to that question is the Pax Romana and the Pater Familias, or in other words, the peace of Rome administrated through patriarchy, guarded by the head of the family in every single little home. And so the structure of society is that Caesar is at the top, and then under him, you've got regional leaders, and along that sort of scale, you've got like leaders of legions and ruling class and aristocracy and that kind of thing. And then under them, you've got fathers of families, and then under them, you've got women and children, and then under them, you've got slaves, and then under them, you've got immigrants. And here's what you see in the story of Rome. Romans didn't believe um, Romans did believe in life after death, but not in the same way that Christians do. And therefore, they didn't believe in a being that was more glorious than themselves. And so the only way for them to achieve glory is to create a politic or a body or a city or a state or an empire that would outlast each of the individuals. And we know this to be the case because in, when Julius Caesar died, he actually made his own status divine with the sort of parliamentary body that existed after him. And so the way by which the Romans achieved glory for themselves was not through personal means, but through political means. But here's what happens when you try and achieve glory through political means. This is probably the most dense part, I promise. You always squash someone. Like you always squash someone. And the only reason that's the case is because the people who are at the top therefore try and guard those who are like them, and in doing so, unleashing their definition on earth of heaven actually kind of achieve hell for those who are not like them. 
Someone actually said that in the 20th century looking at social Nazism. The idea being that the way to achieve glory for oneself politically is to create a program or a politics or a city-state or an empire that outlasts the lifespan of the individual and therefore achieves, in other words, immortality. That's political glory. And so when the disciples go to Jesus, they're like, hey, we want, to, we want to be part of this political glorious program where you overthrow what Caesar's done and we start to usher in our own version of this. That's what the disciples want, political glory. They want to be part of something that the history books write about. There's also personal glory. One of the things that Jesus takes aim at repeatedly in the Gospels is how the religious elite come along and they always assume places of honour and esteem at dinner parties. You know, have you noticed this? They always sort of choose the seat that would make them look like the best, and Jesus kind of rebukes them for it. But what they're after in doing this is they're assuming that they can have esteem and take on a personal glory for themselves uh, that itself would sort of see God as a stepping stone. And so here's the assumption of the human or the people group that are looking for political or personal glory. The assumption is that God either doesn't exist, and therefore I need to achieve glory for myself through politics, or that he may as well not exist and he's just a means by which for me to achieve glory. In other words, I use God really to sort of stroke my own ego. And that's what Jesus takes aim at. This is what the disciples want. They want a seat at the table. They want to be on Jesus' right and his left. Once everything's done and dusted, once they push back the powers of evil, they would sit with Jesus and be at the top of the hierarchy. That's what the disciples want. Personal and political glory, power and esteem. And here's the critique. The critique is that you can only pursue personal or political glory if you assume God's not real. Why? Because you assume, therefore, that the only way you can sort out what John Tyson calls the glory deficit in your heart is by achieving something for yourself that was never destined for you. What do I mean? The biblical story is really simple. It says that God made us for himself. And our experience of glory was always meant to be him first, us second, ruling in partnership with him, but us knowing our place at the same time. A wonderful, honoring place for us to be as creation was begun, but at the same time, somewhat humbling because we know we're not God. After that, humanity sinned, turned in on themselves, rejected God's good definition for like good and evil, and we were banished from the garden, banished from the glory. And so now humans spend their whole lives chasing after glory, whether politically or personally trying to sort out the deficit in our heart that actually we always were meant to have filled by right relationship with God. And here's what we see, therefore. We see the drive to, for personal glory or political fame or whatever it is actually to be the end result of the glory deficit in each of our heart that we need to sort out some other way. Now, there's a lot of stuff in this, and I, I need to skip over a, a portion of it, but here's how we, get, here's how we make this real in our, in our lives. Um, how do you know you search for glory? You search for glory every time you take something created and you see it as a means by which to achieve some kind of esteem or power. We do this with work. So pretend Caesar's not at the top and pretend that like your organizational structure is pictured behind me here. Is it not the case that the way by which we assume we can make a meaning for ourselves in life, get purpose for ourselves in life, is just if we make it from the bottom, maybe not to the top, but somewhere closer toward the top? Or we do this in relationships. We think, okay, I need to get to the top of whatever it is in life and find the girl or find the guy, get the relationship so I might be happy and, and get to the top. 
It's how I get personal glory. It's how I fix the glory deficit. Or in university, you think, gosh, I don't need to be the best, but I just need the marker whose opinion I care most about to really esteem me. And so you sort of find your way trying to climb to the top and get the mark you want, not by every single lecturer, but by the particular lecturer whose opinion you care most about. Or like pick your category. We all have glory deficits and we all try and fill it in some kind of way. But here's the story of the glory deficit. It always leaves us enslaved and anxious. The other night, Kath and I, um, we got to watch a movie together and it was Air, the new Nike movie. Anyone seen that movie? Yeah, we're really niche, sort of like <laughs> artistic movie watchers, clearly. Uh, ben Affleck, Matt Damon, um, Chris Tucker, right on, you know, Rush Hour uh, sort of fame. Anyway, and so it's the story of Nike and their birth, and at the time, the people sitting at the top of the market was Adidas and, or Adidas, depends on where you're from, Adidas and Converse, and Nike was about third in the market at that time. This is around the 90s, I think. And Ben Affleck plays Phil Knight, the CEO, who actually started Nike by selling sneakers out of the back of his car. And Matt Damon plays um, Sonny Vaccaro, who is part of the basketball budget. And so he's got like 250 grand a year, and his goal is to sign basketball players uh, so Nike would sponsor them, so Nike's shoes would be on the basketball court and therefore get esteem and fame and blah, 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 and they'd sell more shoes. And they're racking their brain as to what to do, and they finally think, actually, there's this young 18-year-old guy who's probably going to win championships. His name's Michael Jordan. What if we get him to sign? And so at the time, Michael's heart is with Adidas. There's a point to this, I promise. There's a point to this, I really <laughs> promise. Michael's heart is with Adidas, and so he goes and has a meeting with them. He feels a bit underwhelmed, but the money's good. He goes and meets with Converse, a bit underwhelmed, and they're not sort of sure how the structure of the organization is going to work, so they're not confident that he should go with them. So he sits down with Knight, goes into their boardroom. The CEO, Phil Knight, gives a big spiel, plays a video, and then Matt Damon, played by Sonny Vaccaro, he turns the video off midway through and actually gets, does a bit of a vision cast. And here's what he says to Michael Jordan. And this is not, I don't think this is historically real, but anyway, Hollywood, let's go. I think it paints something of the human picture and the heart we feel when we try and find glory. Sonny Vaccaro said this, he said, money can buy you almost anything, talking about Adidas at that point, but it can't buy you immortality. That you have to earn. I'm gonna look you in the eyes and I'm gonna tell you the future. You were cut from your high school basketball team, but you willed your way to the NBA, and now you're gonna win championships. It's an American story, and that's why Americans are going to love it. People are going to build you up, and God, they are going to, because when you're great and new, we love you. Man, we'll build you into something that doesn't even exist. You're going to change the world, but you know what? We build you into something that doesn't exist, and that means you have to try to be that thing all day, every day. That's how it works, again and again and again. What's he saying? He's appealing to young 18-year-old Michael who's ambitious and wants to be great. And he's got a glory deficit. And so the only way he can fill the glory deficit is if he makes a name for himself, gets out above the rest and makes himself have esteem. But the catch with that is that as you start that journey, people start to say things about you that you don't even know if they're true. And you have to start living up to them. And when you have to start living up to them, then the reputation you've got and the esteem you've got and the fame you've got, the greatness you've got, the glory you've got, actually don't become things that you long for. They become things that enslave you. And so you live your life anxious, always worried whether you're enough, always scared that you're not going to be good enough, always concerned that actually the glory you're chasing after actually isn't attainable. So the disciples want to be great. They want glory. And here's the good news of the Christian story. 
God's glorious so that we don't have to be. Now, that took me a lot of things to say. Everyone here has a glory deficit. And everyone here has a unique way we're trying to fix it. For me, usually it's whether I preach a good sermon or not. And today I feel like a, like a three out of five, you know what I'm saying? It's not as polished. And the risk is I would go home this evening scared that I didn't, I didn't nail it enough. Why? It's my glory deficit and it's the way I try and fill it. What is it for you? For some of you it might be work. Some of you might be getting into the housing market. Stability, security. For some of you it might be like that really niche sort of talent that you watch YouTube videos to try and develop, like the 14 year old trying to learn to backflip when they were, you know, growing up. Definitely thought that would be funnier than it was. It's fine. <laughs> And here's the invitation of this passage, not explicitly, but implicitly. You assume that glory is there for the taking, personally or politically, only if you assume God's not real. And in the Christian story, we've got the kind of God who revealed himself in Jesus, the most beautiful, wonderful, glorious God. God is glorious, so you don't have to be. So stop trying. Lean into his love, rest, in other words, feel relieved. Because they're about to look at the reality of Jesus' greatness. There's also a rebuke that comes with it. So first, the relief of God's glory. He's glorious, so we don't have to be. Second, the reality of Jesus' greatness. And there's going to be a little sort of footnote rebuke in here as well as we go along. So let's feel that together as a community, shall we? Awesome. The reality of Jesus' greatness. What starts as relief turns into rebuke, how Jesus has a different kind of kingdom. Um, growing up, you'll see a picture on the screen behind me. Um, cheese TV, eat your hearts out. I'm probably revealing my age now, but I promise you, if you're younger or older, that you'll get something out of this next little portion, I do promise. There is this moment, every single time an advert would come along halfway through a Pokemon episode, where they'd ask this question, who's that Pokemon? Remember this? Anyone do this? Does anyone know what this Pokemon is? Okay, I don't know what that is, but that's fine. Was that second generation Pokemon? There you go, awesome, really good, helpful. And the assumption of the question is that by the shape, by just the shape, you'd be able to tell what kind of Pokemon it is. By just the outline, you'd be able to, this is a terrible illustration. <laughs> I'm realizing that now, I should have practiced this, but by just the shape, by just the outline, you'd be able to tell the identity of the Pokemon. And, and I would say something similar. I think the way we talk about our lives sort of assumes a shape that we think it's going to have. And this passage, and in fact the whole New Testament, the life of Jesus would ask us to consider what shape do we think our life will have as we go about our days. Now, what we'll see in the request of the disciples, and as we reflect on our own hearts, really hope that fire alarm's not for us. How are we doing? Are we good? That's not us, is it? No, great, awesome. We're good. All right, now we can sing fire fall down and not feel weird about it. Um, so 
the disciples assume that there's a certain kind of shape to their life, and I think it's the same one that Western individuals assume, and it's upwards and to the right. Upwards and to the right. Um, if you go to that slide, thank you so much, Ashton. Um, uh, when we talk about success in the Western world, we assume that this is going to be the shape of our lives. Um, now, again, pick your category. Work, relationships, money, success, security, whatever. Upwards and to the right. That's the shape of the Western life. Now, let's read the passage and see what it might say otherwise. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Now, just pause there. That word indignant, sort of like this gut cry. They're just like, they're not upset because they've missed out. They're concerned that they like, weren't part of the conversation in such a way that they'd be now on Jesus' radar for the same kind of role. It's really important to just keep in mind. They're not upset because they just weren't in the conversation. They're upset because they might have missed out really on being part of that glory. Um, verse 42 says this, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Now pause, we're gonna read verse 43 in a moment, but keep this in mind. Jesus has a picture and the picture is if you find yourself if we can go back to that paterfamilias slide. Thanks, Ashton. If you find yourself in a position of authority over someone, um, the Roman hierarchy, yeah, we could. So this is what Jesus is assuming when he's asking the question. He's saying, hey, you know the Gentiles or the non-Jews, and in this case, therefore, the Romans, when they're in positions of authority over people, is it not the case that they lord it over their subjects? Is it not the case that they say, hey, they pull rank, pull authority? Hey, this is my role, not your role. This is my position, not your position. I'm up here, you're down there, read it and weep. These are how the cards fall. And they're just like, 100%? That's precisely why we would like to be number one and two. That would be really awesome. We'd like a share at your table, Jesus. And then Jesus leans in really gently, but with such authority says, not so with you. That will not be the shape of your life. That will not be the posture of your life. Regardless of what position you find yourself in, that's not how Christians will behave. And the assumption, therefore, is that the shape of the life of those who follow Jesus is the not-so-with-you in counterculture to the day. Um, and so here's what we see when Jesus talks. We see Jesus assuming this. The other verses after it say... Um, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now just pause there for a second. How's that feel? Like if you were someone that was like pulled into church this afternoon because a friend invited you and you're like, I hope I hear an encouraging message. And we use the word slave. Like that, that we got rid of that like, 150 years ago. What are we, Jesus, what gives? His assumption isn't that we will actually be slaves. His assumption is that we would posture ourselves as servants in such a way that it's our new definition of greatness. And that's why you'll see, I've done a little dashed line there, but the assumption is that actually what we orient ourselves toward as Christians is going lower and lower and lower in humility, in service, in sacrifice. Why? Because God actually sorts out the rest. That's the faith step Jesus made as he walked towards the cross. 
Now, something a lot of Christians do, and I feel this myself, is we talk a lot about victory, victory over sin, victory in life, breakthrough through particular struggles. And on one level, that's good, because Christians are really good at believing for things in life that actually might help them materially, like in a meaningful, tangible way. Healing of a broken leg, sort of the fixing of my financial situation. We want victory in those areas. That's good and true and helpful. But that's not the primary posture of call of the Christian life. The primary posture and call of the Christian life is is sure toward victory, but here's what it looks like. Lower and lower and lower. Further down, further down in humility, further down in service, further down in sacrifice. That's the invitation to following Jesus. And the assumption, therefore, is that victory is what God does on our behalf as he resurrects us at the end of time and renews us in like sort of a myriad of ways in the middle of this time. That's the shape of the Christian life. So when we talked about Pokemon before, just randomly, here's what the New Testament assumes. It assumes that people can figure out who you follow by the shape and posture of your life. Right? People can figure out who you follow by the shape and posture of your life. And here's how we help people see Jesus in the shape of our lives. Sacrifice and service. I know that's not a sexy idea. And to be frank, I think it offends our Australian sensibilities because here's what we love as Australians. We love everyone to have a fair go as Aussies. It's actually one of the things I love most about Australia. We love everyone to have a fair go. You're the underdog, we'll back you. You're down and out, we'll help you. We want to create equal opportunity for people. And sure, that might not bear out in the stats, but it's in the culture. We want everyone to have a fair crack, to have a fair crack at life. Here's what that does over time though. It means, therefore, that we, try and we start to keep score in our own hearts about like, what we've achieved, what we've done. And rather than being postured towards servants as Christians, we start to, therefore, try and keep score and we start to say, like the pious Christians that D.L. Moody tried to approach, oh, I've got other things to do. I've got all these excuses. I can think of a myriad of reasons why I wouldn't serve, not least of which is I just don't want to. But the shape of the Christian life, Jesus assumes, is postured towards service and sacrifice for others. Now, let me apply this to our lives just a touch more. Um, Because I think, as this would offend our Australian sensibilities, I think we really need to come back to the paradoxical nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not the kingdom of this world. Now, let me just go away from my notes for a second. Because I've spent years trying to think through the way in which Christianity makes sense reasonably and rationally. I spent a lot of time trying to think through how Christianity is palatable to the Western world. You know, you think of C.S. Lewis quotes like, if I find within myself a desire for which nothing in this world can satisfy, it must be true that I was made for another world. Ipso facto, God's real, and you might like him. (laughs) When you read the teaching of Jesus like this, it's actually really hard to make an argument for. You can only invite people to taste and see because it is so otherworldly. It is so countercultural. Like if I was to say to the average Aussie on the street, even myself, hey Alex, you should serve people. I'd be like, they should find their own friends to serve them. Why is it my responsibility? I know who I am to take care of, my wife, my dog Jack. They get my attention, I'm too tired otherwise. But the scriptures come again and again, they just say, actually, you wring your life out for the sake of the world in service, in sacrifice, in humility. 
And the, the place of the Christian life is lived down low. Let me just read from Andrew Murray and then like walk through some really practical ways to apply this to our lives. Andrew Murray says it like this, the highest glory of the creature is in being only a vessel to receive and enjoy and show forth the glory of God. It can do this only as it is willing to be nothing in itself that God may be all. Water always fills the lowest places. The lower, the emptier a human lies before God, the speedier and the fuller will be the inflow of divine glory. Here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus doesn't come to us at the end of our life with the promise for those who follow him faithfully and say, well done, good and faithful leader. He won't come to us at the end of our life and say, well done, good and faithful CEO. He won't even come to us as good as it is to think and hopeful it is for us to believe. He won't even come to us and say, well done, good and faithful husband or wife or friend or relationship holder. Well done, good and faithful person at church. Well done, good. He will say, well done, good and faithful what? Here's what I want at the end of my life. I want Jesus to come and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And you are ready to serve in as much as you see him as the glorious one and you as just in that story, redeemed by grace, welcome to be part of his team in this world. So what could this look like? Four quick things, and then we're gonna worship together. Ready? The relief of God's glory, the reality of Jesus' greatness, and some application areas. Um, What could this look like in our relationships? Let me just talk particularly about marriage. Love what Andy Stanley says. He says something like, If you believe that greatness looks like service and you're married, then marriage for the individual is the attempt to run to the back of the line for your spouse in all ways and all ways. What does that mean? Well, an example from my life, I've used it before, but something I love doing as a a husband, unfortunately, is always keeping score of the house chores that I've done. Now, Kath and I, we do marriage counseling with a few couples, and most of what we do is we just talk about our failures in front of them so they feel comfortable about what mistakes they could make along the way. We do more than that. If you engage and you think about like, marriage counseling, <laughs> we will help you. But it'll mostly be because we just don't take ourselves seriously in front of you, and we love each other, and it's good. But here's what I say when I stand before that couple on their wedding day. Don't keep score, keep serving. Because the moment you try and keep score, you will. And that will be cancer for your marriage. It'll hurt. The way I like to do it is I, you know, Kath comes home and I say, I vacuumed, done the dishes, you know, just start giving testimony of all the things I've done. And what I'm doing therefore is I'm not sort of trying to boast, I'm actually trying to get her to be like, well, I might do X, Y, and Z, you know what I mean? And it's just an insidious way, I think, for me in particular, and maybe some of us in the room, that we keep score. And here's what serving as greatness looks like in the kingdom of God if you're married. Don't keep school, keep serving. At work, what could it look like? I've said this before, but Robert Grenfell, he popularized the idea of servant leadership in the 20th century. And the idea being that in the past, traditional authoritarian kind of leadership looks like sitting at the top of the pyramid, peering down and seeing people as a means by which to get your results, productivity, uh, sort of bottom line increase, et cetera, et cetera. And when you do that, all you can see as individuals is either as a means to your success and therefore an object to be used or as an obstacle to your success and therefore expendable. And he popularized the idea of servant leadership and he said, what would it look like if we flipped the pyramid upside down and pictured the leader down the bottom? How would we think about those who are in our organizations? Well, he said, actually, we'd see them as people that we're trying to serve, help flourish, push further up and develop in such a way that they might grow and perhaps outgrow me. 
And so again, I love what Andy Stanley says, but he says that the, per, the higher up the organization chart you are, the more able to facilitate the success of those who are underneath you. What would it look like in your workplace? It'd look like serving those around you so that they might flourish, maybe in such a way that they outpace and outgrow you. What could it look like in our church? You know, we live in an anti-institutional, post-Christian, sort of like post-volunteerism age. What does that mean? Basically, it means that church really easily can just be the place that we come and sit, enjoy, and don't sacrifice for. Now, on one level, that's good, because it's a reaction to the kind of institutional abuse that's cropped up all across the Western world in sort of particularly big churches. There's something good about that. But here's what, here's what I don't want it to do for us as a church. Don't let the pain of broken systems in the past rob you from the kind of greatness of serving Jesus has for you to enjoy in this present. Amen. Like, I was building a ping pong table this afternoon with our kids' life leaders. It was just the best thing. And I just say, man, there's some weird, non-glamorous things to do at a church. Like I think Miller, um, who's a young, young girl in our church, she was peeling bay leaves off of a branch for our meals program last month. But you know what she gets to do when she's older? She gets to say, I was part of Jesus' hands and feet to love on the last, the least, and the lost in Brisbane City. Serving avails us of such wonderful experience of God and community. Let's be a church that enjoys serving our King together in whatever way. Um, there's one other area to apply it to, but I'll skip it. And let me just walk us through to a bottom line. Jesus never asks us to do for him or to others what he hasn't already done for us, which is why I love verse 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As I walk through this, I'd love to invite the band up behind me and we'll just prepare our hearts to worship. The assumption of the Christian life is that the vision is so great that we could never hope to achieve it unless we've got a power outside of ourselves. And what Jesus has done, as Paul would write in Philippians 2, he'd leave the home of heaven put on flesh in history, humble himself, serve of himself, sacrifice himself, live the life we should have lived, died the death that we deserved, so that on the cross he could take away our sin, buried again, raised on the third day, therefore to new life. He's made it possible for us to come to him freely, by grace, through faith. And so here's the invitation of this entire passage. Sure, redefine what you think greatness looks like. You wanna be great? Awesome. Here's what it looks like in the paradoxical upside-down kingdom of God, postured for service, relieved by the reality of God's glory and stepping into the reality of Jesus' glory. But you can never hope to do that or even attempt that if you're not in relationship with God through Jesus Christ himself. So I want to invite us, actually, just to consider that that might be what the step is that we take this afternoon. So can I invite us to stand? And as you stand, perhaps you want to close your eyes and just posture your heart and prepare. What would it look like to respond to Jesus in this moment? The man who didn't come to be served, to stamp his image across humanity, but actually the man who came to serve and give of his life so you might step into a relationship with him. If you've never known Jesus, I would love for you to take that step into a relationship with him right now. And if as I've been speaking through the mumble jumble of all the words I've put together, 
you felt in your heart this sense that, gosh, actually, maybe what Jesus did on the cross was for me, that he died for me, he rose again for me. And I would love to know this Jesus that Alex has been talking about. If that's you, can I just invite you where you are just to raise your hand nice and high? We do this every week and we just create space for people to step into a relationship with Jesus. So if that's you, just nice and high. I'd love to be able to see it. I don't see any at the moment, which is totally okay. Awesome, wonderful, thank you, I see that hand. We would love to just pray with you. And we're gonna pray in a moment. And as we do that, I just invite the whole church, those who call Jesus Lord, just to pray along with me. And it's simple, we just say, God, thank you for what you've done in Jesus. Sorry for the life I've lived, please help me follow you. So can we pray that together, church? Is that okay, just to encourage our brother who's raised his hand? Awesome, let's, let's pray together. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what you've done, Lord. Sorry for the life that I've lived. Thank you that you hold it not against me, but welcome me. Please come into my life. Be my saviour. Be my Lord. Be my King. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen and amen. Brother, we have got a gift for you in the shape of a Bible. So I'd love our host team. Yeah, they've got that. So we'll give that to you as the afternoon. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.